Um, I didn't, well, let's pray and then we'll go. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us sinners. Amen. So I've got an outline for you, but I don't want to give it to you because I don't want to ruin you. Um, in this sense, I don't want to ruin your creativity. So I think Pastor Nelson went last week, and then, um, you know, I didn't buy the books because I thought you'd look and you'd say, fat book for $17, no way. So, but then you said, we want a fat book because that makes us feel smart. So, okay, <laughs> have a fat book. They're 17 bucks. Now, the cool thing about the book is, I'm sure Pastor Nelson told you this, the cool thing about the book is it's a very easy read. It's just a lot. So Kenneth Bailey was a guy who was born of missionary parents in the Middle East. He grew up in the Middle East. He's not Lutheran, but he actually did his Ph.D. at St. Louis, uh, at Concordia St. Louis. When Concordia St. Louis, you know, you were almost too young to remember this, but, you know, 70 years ago, 80 years ago, uh, it was Harvard, Yale, and Concordia Seminary St. Louis, and there's correspondence between the three, um, between the three uh, presidents about how to run a seminary properly. It's fascinating. So, I mean, it was, it was the, one of the places to go, and Bailey came and did his Ph.D. there. But ba- it's, a, it's a very basic idea, he, and he's given his life to it, which is he takes the scriptures. This is how he gets started, at least. He took the scriptures. He went out to the Bedouin, and he told them Jesus' stories. And then instead of saying to them, this is what the story means, he said, what does this story mean? You know, you're, you live here, and nothing changes in the Middle East thousands of years after thousands of years. I mean, even now, you can go to the Middle East, you're kicking along, and there are shards of pottery that have been lying there for 2,000 years. It's the most amazing thing. Nothing changes. You know, when in the, in the wars, you know, when, when they have wars in the Middle East, um, the armies go the same way through, the, through that the Philistines and the Israelite armies went through, you know, three, 4,000 years ago because the landscape hasn't changed. It's a very slow-moving culture, as, frankly, you can see in so many things around the world today. But, you know, one of the good parts of that is you can take these stories of Jesus, you can tell them to people who have lived, you know, in tents for, you know, their tribes have lived that way for hundreds, thousands of years. So he says, you know, what does this story mean? Um, That's how he gets started. Now, he brings then a very different perspective often to how to hear and read a text and maybe not... Um, the way you've always heard it. So I'm not making a case for the guy's right on everything. What I'm making a case for is, isn't this interesting that he reads the text in a particular different way? So, for example, the text we're going to do today, The Woman Caught in Adultery, he reads this text completely different than I've ever read the text. Um, It's a very interesting other read, and it could be right. but um, And it doesn't change a lot at the end, but he may just have a completely different read. So... I I know you didn't have the book, and um, I summed it up for you in an outline. And before we leave, we should decide what story we're going to do next week so you can read ahead if you want to. But at least today will be a good example, maybe, of um, hearing a story uh, in a way that maybe you haven't heard it before. So uh, John 8 is what we're going to do. As you're turning to that, let me remind you that often in your Bible, uh, John 8 doesn't appear. And, you know, my response to that has always been, if Jesus didn't, didn't do this story, he should have done it. And if he didn't say these words, he should have said it. So he actually has an explanation in the book about why he thinks maybe this story came late to the scriptures. Um, I can just sum for you real quickly why he says that. Now, I don't know if I want you to read or not. If you, I, if you read, I'm afraid you're going to spoil yourselves for the because I want to ask you what you hear in the story. But in any case, John 8 was in my Bible as a kid. It's not in my Bible as an adult. What happened? 
Um, the story of the woman caught in adultery was in my Bible, and then it's not in my Bible. Sometimes it's in a footnote, sometimes it's at the end. His explanation is that, um, and you know this, you should know this, you know this, before there were written scriptures, there were oral scriptures. These, their tribes told stories. At night they sat around and told stories. These were our stories. And they had people who told the stories, you know, priests who told the stories. And occasionally they, things were written down. But things were almost always talked about. They happened and were talked about before they were written down. So, um, you know, your latest hipster, Mumford and Sons, um, I know you all went out and got the, you know, you, get, you downloaded two days ago when the new, when the new bit came out. A genius bit of Lutheran theology that'll be in the margin comments in a week or two, where he's, there's a line that says, I know it's true because Jesus says it's true. Okay, now that is genius Lutheran theology. In Wheaton, you don't know it's true because Jesus says it's true. You know it's true because you've argued 87 reasons why the Bible is the inspired word of God. That's the Baptist way of proceeding and not the Mumford and Sons way of proceeding. And if you want to be hipsters, you should lose that, okay? So he, they didn't say, we met Scripture, and then we met Christ. They say, we met Christ, and then we met Scripture. That's the, that's the difference between fundamentalists and Lutherans, okay? So I was just happy to see that, you know, finally Lutherans rise to the Mumford and Sons level. So, um, you know, here we go. Uh, he, they tell these stories, and then he said, here's what could have happened. One is, they just kept telling that it didn't get written down. Two is, occasionally rich people would have, um, they would say, make me a copy of that. Because you know, like this whole thing, you know, everybody always, their blood pressure always goes up when somebody finds a scrap of paper 400 years after Jesus says, my wife. I'm just like, this happens every year at Easter. The Discovery Channel has to make ratings. This happens all the time. If, you, so if you've all have been to church, you would know that the next logical thing for Jesus to say would be, my wife, the church, Ephesians 5. Yeah, all you have to do is finish the sentence. My wife doesn't mean that Jesus was married. It's like the most basic, but you, know, you can stir everybody up and yeah, just like everybody calm down. It's 400 years after we've seen this before. Anyway, um, that's the reason then they had a canon. So what, what could happen is it could have been a story that was told verbally. It could have been a story that rich people had written down. People would say, write a, write, copy, copy a few of these stories down for my family. But they would say, we've got kids in the house. Don't copy this story down. Because you have to remember, this is an honor and shame culture. And it's sort of like whether you let your kids go to R-rated movies when they're 11, 10, 11, or 12. If you're going to be reading this around the table, you just leave that story out. Now, eventually, you put the story in. And in the canon of the scriptures later, you know, the story is in um, and it's there. In any case, kind of everybody agrees um, if it wasn't, you know, it's, it's a Jesus story and it's ancient. Um, there are people who, you know, for whatever reasons don't disagree. I think it's a real story. I think it's a genius of a story. Uh, for just a run of, there's so many things that are Jesus-like in this story. So just listen, just, just listen. Maybe don't even read. Just kind of listen to this story. What you have to understand first is the context. Um, this is, uh, the text says, the last day of the feast, the eighth day of the feast. Okay. I'm sorry, this is the last day of the feast. And the next day when he comes back, it's really interesting. The next day when he comes back, any day by Jewish law, any day after a feast is a Sabbath day. Okay, so we're going to read about the last day of the feast and then a Sabbath day. Jesus saves this woman on a Sabbath day. That's really interesting. Okay. On the last day of the feast, the great day, 
um, Jesus stands up and proclaims, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow living water. Now, that's quoting Isaiah, uh, or very nearly quoting Isaiah. Uh, And the people listening, the Pharisees and scribes, would have heard Jesus quoting Isaiah and applying it to himself. That's why they get so cranky, okay? So they go home on the last day of the feast very, very cranky. And they come back the next day and they're ready to do Jesus in. Okay, that's the story. Um, I'm going to go to chapter 8, and I'm not going to read the middle part just because of time. Um, They each went to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, goes away to sleep. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came with him, and he sat down and he taught them. So he's a rabbi. A rabbi goes to the temple, and he sits down, The people gather around, and he taught them. When he sits down, he marks himself as a rabbi. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a one. What do you say about her? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to badger him, continued to ask him. And he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the eldest. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus looked up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and do not sin again. Okay, now you've heard that story a hundred times before, as I have. I love that story for a whole bunch of reasons. Kind of when you hear the story, kind of go, What do you hear as you're going through? Or tell me how you've always heard the story interpreted. Or tell me what you've always thought about or how you've heard it preached about. How do you always hear that story? Yes. So you went to soft churches growing up where everybody could do whatever they wanted. Yes, that's one possibility. Yes, you're Lutheran. You're, oh, you're that kind of Lutheran. Yes, okay. Yeah, we have names for those kind. Yeah, we do. Usually with the name. So, so one side is, is, hey, just give everybody a little bit of slack, right? Okay, what else? How have you heard it as you've grown up? That's right. So you'd be you'd be in altar and pulpit fellowship with Miss Klukas there. That's right. There you go. Well, yeah. Okay. That's good. That's good. I mean, this is the this is the, we'll have the mercy table sort of set, settled right in here. How else have you heard this, Jan? How have you heard this? Well, where's the guy that we're involved in? Fantastic. Which is just a huge rub. Because yeah. Ex- Absolutely right. Stone them all. Absolutely. So finally, somebody stands up for Moses and the law. Well, 
well, that presses the story just a bit. Yes, you might be able to make a reality show out of that, that last bit. Go ahead, Mrs. Hess, go ahead. You are, and a lot of people in this group have said that, by the way. We have been meaning to have a little intervention with you and ask you to behave yourself. Oh, boy. What about farther up in the text? What else have you heard? Go ahead. Good. What are we going to do with that? Right. And what does that mean? Yes, so that's interesting. That's a reflection. That you, so you've pushed it back onto Jesus. That's right. And then we have to think about the other people about that too. What else? Yeah, what's he write on the ground? This is going to be the most shocking thing that I, that the speculation this book is what he wrote. All right, good. So a little bit of background. So... It was the last day of the feast. The next day is a Sabbath. You are a good Jew, except if you would read just a bit more uh, of the. Actually, he says. So I can't, I'm not claiming any of this. He says you can't write on a piece of paper because that's permanent. But if you need to write, you can write in the dust because the wind blows that away, and it's not permanent, so it's not really work. Isn't that interesting? And by, so now by doing that, so this is the kind of thing you do. So he said, he said what Jesus, when he, when he writes on the ground, not what he writes, when he writes on the ground, he shows that he's not, you remember one of these things they said about Jesus, where did he get all this learning? How does this guy know so much? And, they, and part of the thing that the, the way they try to discredit him, say he's a stiff, he's never studied in Jerusalem, right? Yes, he did. <laughs> well, yeah, well, when he was 12, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but they, they say he's never been to rabbi school and he claims to be a rabbi. You know, to be a rabbi, you always said you, you studied with Hillel, you studied with somebody important, right? You went to Harvard. That's how you showed that you were a big shot rabbi. So Jesus doesn't, you know, he went to community college. And, uh, you know, but when he... The, the, he was homeschooled by the Blessed Virgin Mother. Ah, oh, yes, he was. Uh, yes, he was. So, so, so one reading he says is because he writes, he's clever enough to write in the dust. He's showing, for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, that he knows rabbinic law, that he knows the way of the Pharisees, that he's a good Jew, and that he's observant. So he's already by writing in the dust, pushing back the notion that he's against Moses. Isn't that interesting? You know, I wonder that. I don't remember him talking about that, but I did wonder that myself, whether you can stone somebody on the... Can you stone somebody on the Sabbath? You would think, you would think not. You would think not. You, you would think you would... That would be work to kill somebody. They wanted to toss him off the cliff, yeah. Which there are high cliffs right there. You could actually, it would be like being tossed off, you know, tossed off the cliffs of Dover. It is a long way down. It is. It's a long way down right there. There are cliffs right there. And you can, in fact, the day that I was there, I remember a helicopter from the Israeli army flew across at eye level. But it was, you know, several hundred feet down where it was flying. So, I don't know. Yes? 
That's fascinating. Yeah, what was he writing? What would be the possibilities? So one would be, it would be fascinating if he was writing the man's name. That would be a great little revelation. What, what do you think? What was he writing? I always thought he would drawing a line. That would be good. And what, what are on the two sides of the line if he's drawing, drawing a line in the sea? What's he doing? The, the law and the gospel. So there's mercy and justice? Gotcha. Ins and outs. Okay, good. Yes, please. I had always heard he was writing the sins of all the people. Really? I heard once, and I think it was from the Crystal Cathedral guy who gave a, ser- he gave a sermon once where the Jesus was, had knelt down to write the Lord's Prayer in the dust. So that would be the mercy way of talking. And I, I always, yeah, maybe so. I always left because they were humbled. Yeah. Uh, he, he the, I mean, part of what he's going to do, we'll do this. Part of what he says is they left because they were so angry. Jesus had publicly shamed them, and they knew they couldn't kill him. Now, why couldn't they kill him? You're in the temple. Do you know what the temple looked like? So the temple was, I think he said 35 acres. The temple mount. It's not that big. The, the land that St. John owns, when we, before we sold next door, I think was eight acres. Okay, So it'd be about three acres to a city block, four acres to a city block, right? So it's 35 acres on the Temple Mount, so it's not a big place. On three sides. It is, but it's not like, you can, and you can see what's going on from here to there, because it's, you know, it's square, right? It's not like they're not in a row, so, you know, you're six by six-ish, right? So it's not that huge. On three sides, there were, there's a colonnade or a, what we would call a cloister. When you're down in the sanctuary, on three sides, there's like the aisle on the side, on three sides. And then um, on the fourth side, the Romans had built a fortress so they could keep an eye on things. And Roman soldiers always patrolled in the cloister and even in the crowd. It was always, and you remember how it was set up. There was a place where Gentiles could go, and then there was a place where Jews could go, and there was a place only men could go, and there was a place only priests could go, right, increasing holiness. So, and the Romans always caused an issue if they went past the line, that could cause a riot. So they could keep an eye on things, and they actually walked in the colonies, and they walked around on the mount. So um, they would be watching for people who would be causing trouble, right? So that sort of, um, that sort of raises the stakes as well. Yes, please. Yeah. Yes. Right. Kind of. They did get one up, yeah, by this guy who. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. I don't know. Um, you know, sitting down is a lot like you put this down, and when you put this down, people know somebody's going to do something here. It's, it's just it's that simple. You know, the standing up, is it so that people can hear? Is it because he's crouching and it's the normal way? You know, I, I don't know. I only know what people tell me about this stuff, so I don't know always. Uh, 
So what else? Anything else? Right. Yeah, that's a very interesting. Well, here's the thing: if there's going to be a fist fight, and the police are going to charge into the mob, do you want to be around? <laughs> when the police showed up, then what happened? Yeah, when everybody scatters when the police show up. So, um, you know, that's part of the deal. Well, it's a, little like, it's a little like the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 68. They're there, and then there's going to be a point when things are going to go really, really bad, and you probably don't want to be there when they go really, really bad. So anyway, I've given you kind of a general summary. Don't Try not to cheat ahead too much. Let's kind of, because I, I want you to still, part of the reason I didn't give you this, I don't want to ruin you. Once you have heard somebody else explain a story to you, then it's very hard to like, get back to your own explanation of it. But, you know, see what happens. So the first thing that, that Bailey does is he says, you have, to, you have to understand this whole story in the midst of a run of stories here talking about atonement. And I'm not going to go through all that, but he has, a very, he has two very nice pages where he basically says the most Lutheran thing, which is atonement is really the simple question of whether or not it's for you. So Jesus died on a cross. This is straight Luther, which was very nice to see in him. Luther said, you know, God is everywhere. That's true. But the question is, is God there for you? And that's why Luther always talks about, you know, the best, the, be- the body of Christ for you. So the question is, how do you know that what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago and 6,000 miles away from here is actually for you. Why does it matter to you? Why is it effective for you? Why is it in your place? Why does it touch you? Why does it heal you? Why does it strengthen you? Why does it forgive you? See, how do you know actually that it's for you? And Bailey would argue that these stories in the, from which this one is plucked are a bunch of stories about basically Jesus touching you. I'm, this is my own words. Jesus applying himself to you. Jesus getting nose to nose with you. Jesus you know, ultimate stretch, dying and rising in your place. So he would say, first, read the story in that way. What Jesus is going to do is show that he's for a woman like this. He wants to be for the rest of the crowd, but if they won't have him, you know, Jesus doesn't work by force. They want to, you know, so, so I give you, and you can read this later, how many ways he talked about atonement. He gives at least eight or nine ways that the scriptures talk about atonement. One thing about Lutherans is we talk very, crisply about one, you know, the forensic notion of a judge declaring you righteous. In fact, the judge sort of, you know, comes down from the bench and takes your penalty. But there are several other ways about, there are several other ways to describe what happens to us. And he gives you a really quick run-through of about nine of them. Yes, please. I was going to say, part, the thing that always struck me is that she was a woman and they don't have very high stature. So the mere fact that he would stand up for a woman um, was probably insulting to them. I, you know what I mean? So yeah, he says at some point, and I wrote it down here, the woman is just a prop. And they show how disdainful they are toward women because they don't, who said that about, they don't bring the man. Somebody said that, yes. Which is always a very, I mean, you could see the guy jumping through the window if mud huts had windows. But you could, you know, you could sort of see the guy escaping, but you can also see the fix being in, right? You can, and you can just see, this is such a story about powerful people abusing not powerful people. It's such a story about that. You take this woman who's got no status, no right, no family. Doesn't she? She's married. There's nobody who's there to defend her. She is all alone, right? 
and they seem not to care, which then tells you, because what do the Pharisees say that they're all about? They're all about what? They're all about the way of the law. They're all about, and the law includes justice, even justice for widows and orphans. This is what I desire, you know, that you, you know, feed the widows and care for, care for the orphans, right? It's all over the scripture. And so the very fact that they bring this woman alone without a man, unless he really did, you know, take the last boat to China and they can't catch him, here's the thing. That is just a horrible abuse. It shows their hypocrisy from the very first word, right? So it's a very, and that's a thing that's repeated. You know, there's a whole, there's a whole, you know, feminist theology and the notion of a patriarchal society. You know, that whole, that whole realm of theology that's, that's grown up in the last, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, it actually has, it, there's something to it. You know, not everything, but there's something to it. It recognizes that, women or have been oppressed kind of from forever as a particular class of people. So you have a story about Jesus who befriends women. Very interesting. In the way that he befriends lepers, the way he defends the sick, the demonized, the sinners, the unclean, man with a woman, withered hand, right? These are, these are all the... So it tells you who Jesus is for. So in the thing about... Everybody is on the one side of Jesus' line. Everybody's in, nobody's out unless you want to be out. I've always read this story, I have to confess, I've always read this story as a teaching moment for the Pharisees. He reads it as exactly the opposite. He reads it as a declaration of war, which is a very interesting read of this story. I'd never read it that way. It might be true. It doesn't change the ending, but it's so interesting to read that way. Okay, So, start with, he's talking about how the gospel comes to a woman like this, a sinner, how does Jesus, how does he put himself in her place? How does he stand with her? How, is he, you know, how, does he, how does he bring her into his flesh? How does he do that? Okay. So um, I'm all the way then to number seven. So let's presume, let's just tell the story his way. Because you got, the thing is, is you're sophisticated enough. This isn't, a, this isn't, you know, we're not in a Bible class where we're sort of saying, this is the party line, and you've got to go home and believe this. I mean, you're past that 10 years ago. What we're saying is, isn't it interesting to read this story in all different ways? Because at the end of the day, this is what people who kind of pound their Bibles don't understand. These are stories, and they're real people, and it's messy. And there are all sorts of things we don't know, like what he wrote on the ground or where the heck the guy is. There's all those things. And they do not change the meaning of the story. I mean, the end of the story, the meaning of the story is that Jesus stands with this woman in solidarity. That's the meaning of the story. And what you're supposed to say is, and he stands with me too, right? That's what you're supposed to say. That part doesn't change. The the middle part is very, very interesting. So here we go. Um, Let's say that the story played out the way it is. You're having a big party, the last day of the feast, and Jesus ruins the party. He ruins the party by talking about himself as being living water, and that's the way Yahweh talked about himself in Isaiah. You remember, this is the same way Jesus got in trouble where he said, before Abraham was, I am, in John 6, which is to say that he was God. You know, before Abraham, when did you ever see our, you're not 30 years old, you've seen Abraham? Before Abraham was, I am, the great Yahweh burning bush. I mean, Jesus is basically saying, (laughs) I'm God. Here's another place where he's saying, I'm God. Or he takes a text that, and applies it to himself as the Messiah, at the very least. And that just torques these guys. This is Bailey's reading of it. So they go home and they stew over it all night. Or apparently there's a little bit of you know, internet chatter. They collaborate a bit and they say, 
how are we going to do this guy in by tomorrow? Because this is really getting bad. And if you read the verses we didn't read, they say this guy's got to be stopped. And then Nicodemus, you remember who came at night in chapter 3? Nicodemus says, you know, come on, why don't we just see what happens? And they're like, okay. So now we, everybody comes back the next morning. And the question is, um, are we going to arrest him or are we going to shame him? What's the best way to do him in? There's a couple of ways you can do him in. Now, um, here's the thing. Let me ask you a question. When, when somebody goes on a hunger strike, um, so it happens in Guantanamo Bay, it happens in Iraq, it happens in Ireland. When somebody goes on a hunger strike, why don't the powers that be who've imprisoned these people and usually been very rough with them, why don't they just let them die? Why don't they just let them go? They... Oh, no, no, why, don't, why, don't the, why does the government just let them die? Because they're afraid of the people. They lose some sort of power, but they also gain another. They become martyrs, right? Yeah. Right. So, so what, uh, you know, now he's talking around the story. But basically, what's so fun about this is he's basically saying, these are real people just like we're real people, okay? They're real people. So they figure out, this guy's got to be stopped. One group says, it'd be pretty easy to have the Romans arrest him. But what happens when the Romans arrest somebody? What happens when they arrested John? Bigger than he was before, right? So one way is to, I mean, this, um, the woman uh, in, I want to say Burma because I'm an old man. Uh, Miramar. Miramar, Miramar. sorry. Um, You know, she gets arrested. She's under house arrest for several years. She comes up to win the Nobel Peace Prize, right? I mean, one way you make people more famous than they are before is to arrest them. Yeah, the same way. Yeah, I mean, this is the way that people... So one group says, why don't we just turn them over to the Romans? Um, the other group says, that doesn't work usually in politics. What we really want to do is shame the guy and make him illegitimate. And you have seen, if you don't think this is still true, you have seen shaming throughout the presidential campaign, right? When people say, did you do this? There's just... Shaming works, right? It just works. It's a great way to... Um, Make a leader illegitimate. You can shame them. Okay. He stood up for vice president and had to step down because. Absolutely, you get nominated to be a Supreme Court justice, and they found you didn't pay your Social Security on your on your illegal immigrant housekeeper. What? <laughs> I guess you can't be a Supreme Court justice then, right? So basically, the, um, you know, the arresting people don't win. The shaming people seem to win the day, okay? So they say, well, let's find a way to shame him. And, of course, you know the story. So what is the way that they're going to try to shame him? They're going to try to, what are they going to try to do to him? Absolutely. Yeah, so he'll lose his credibility. He's either, um, it'll go one way or another. So how to stop him? So the woman's a prop. They're indifferent to her suffering. Uh, this is very interesting. The law matters, and she does not. And you remember the Old Testament criticism, how often the Lord, Yahweh, talks about his people, and he says, you really care a lot about theoretical pencil and paper stuff, but you don't give a damn about people. And that's really a problem. And, and then Jesus, this great thing, he says, you know, once he says, well, is the Sabbath made for man or man for the Sabbath? You know, what's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law, the Torah, the giving of words, is so that life can flourish. So two things that often happen here. Um, I have to be careful what I say. Because it's always so much fun saying it. You know, that's why you have to be careful about it. Uh, I'll just pass. So here's the thing. Um, 
This woman is a prop. The crowd and the Romans, they're both watching. It's a pretty clean-cut case. Leviticus 20.10, on a point number eight, Moses says to Stoner, the scriptures say to Stoner, what would you say? Now, here are the two possibilities. If they stone, that would cause an uproar and it would break Roman law. You remember in John 18, this is very clever, Bailey, to kind of put this in. You remember when they go to crucify Jesus, they say, we actually don't have the power to kill anybody. You've outlawed that. Do you remember that? Yeah. So, in a sense, I mean, one possibility is that Jesus, if Jesus orders the stoning, um, have you ever seen a stoning? I mean, about once, if, I mean, here's the thing, I don't really encourage this, but about once a year on, on the news, about once a year for 20 years, somebody gets stoned, it gets caught on tape, and they show it on the news. They usually, it's fuzzy. If you want to go on YouTube and see what it's like with people in modern day, what they normally do is bury people up to their neck, or they sort of put them in a pit, kind of half buried, or where everybody's trajectory is down. It is the most brutal thing. Now, the reason I'm saying that to you is that what usually happens is that it creates this mob scene, right? And people just go crazy. I mean, people just go, you know, you've, you know, I didn't, I have, I used to not be able to understand how mobs went crazy until I was actually in some mobs around them. And now I understand. I mean, there is a thing where people become, especially when they're exposed to death and evil and lies and trouble, people would do anything. Uh, and Bailey, actually, growing up in the Middle East, one of the things, this, he had this great line, I think I put it in here, he said, I think he put this in here, mobs will do anything. And he lived in Beirut when Beirut, Beirut used to be the Paris of the Middle East. Beirut was... It was filled with banks and clubs and rich people. Beirut, just you know, just north of Israel. This was this gorgeous, wonderful, beautiful. Everybody rich. I mean, people went from Europe to vacation in Be- in Beirut. Beirut was this gem, and now it's a disaster. And it's a disaster more or less because mobs have sprung up from one direction and another over the years. I mean, people will do anything. So that's one possibility that you stone and you you cause an but the other side, if you don't stone, then um, you're kind of seen as a coward. And, you know, you talk a big ball game, but you don't ever really come through. And you see yourself as being unfaithfulness would be, you don't really love Moses and the law. Now, Bailey would say, this is point number nine, that Jesus finds a third way. That Jesus um, defines, he redefines, or he defines, or he Redefined isn't fair. It's more that he reestablishes or brings to light once again um, what real justice is. So you don't know this by memory, but as soon as I say it to you, you will. Isaiah 42, 3, does anybody know what that is? There's no reason you would, but you'll recognize it. Did you? What's it say? You looked it up. Good enough. So there you go. And that's a messianic thing that we always read around Christmas. A bruised reed, right? A bruised reed. How Break the stalk. He breaks some of the fibers. So a bruised reed, he won't bend. So he comes up against things that are broken and damaged. And his presence doesn't make it any worse. And a smoldering wick, you've seen how smoldering wick, any time after church, he won't put out. So it basically, and that's justice. What was the last line? He will live. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Nations is Guim, Gentiles. He'll bring 
to everybody he brings justice. So everybody's in, everybody gets justice, and the kind of justice you get is the kind of justice that doesn't crush you, right? So now you're thinking atonement again, where he gives you a justice that you could never... So the real Messiah will bring you a justice that doesn't crush you. It'll be a justice that lets you recover, a justice that lets you live. Does that make sense? So they have a justice where, and, and you know this, you know this, one kind of justice is the letter of the law, you commit adultery, we stone you. If you've had kids, you know this. You know, you tell them to be home on time, and they're not home on time, and now you've got to make a choice, right? So one way is, there's one way, and then there's another way, and as Lutherans, we've always said, you know, we need both of those, but maybe not um, the stoning, okay? All right, flip your page. So what did he write in the dust? This was the, I'd never heard this, and I, I couldn't believe it when I read it. He says that Jesus bends down and writes in the dust, killer. He bends down, he writes something like death, execution, or I know it's startling, or killer. Now, isn't that interesting? I'm like, I've never heard that, and I wouldn't have thought of that in a million years. So, um, why? So now you're Gambit. He writes in the dust because it's the Sabbath. He can write in the dust. And that would be the strict observance of the law. And he puts it back to them now. So they've come to trap him, and they've tried to push him into a corner, and they don't expect, they, they don't expect that he will be faithful and so he outfaithfuls them to the letter of the law, and he just writes in the dust, killer. Now, how does that strike you? Right? Yeah, but we're not there yet, so you can't jump ahead. And that's the way Bailey reads the story. Bailey basically says, see, we always think about the Pharisees being the law and Jesus being the gospel. That's how we read the story. I think it still reads that way at the end. Basically, he says, this is Bailey's reading, hey, I'm willing to play. Let's all play together. Let's all stone her, and then we'll all go to prison together. It's a genius little move, if the story actually works this way. So he basically says to his accusers, I'm just like you, my brothers. We're simpatico. Let's go to prison together. Because you know the Romans are standing around. They always had extra patrols at the feasts. It's a Sabbath. There are people teaching. The Romans are always on edge. So here is this guy saying, hey, let's all play together and let's play hard. Let's stone her. That's, that's Bailey's reading the text. Are you uncomfortable? No? Uh, because Jesus was... I mean, he, now here's the thing. So I gave you the great Bedouin background I, just to try to give you a sense of him in the Middle East, that he's reading this as a Middle Easterner. There's this cleverness of back and forth, but primarily the thing would be, and this is, I, you know, I've learned so often, primarily is that in the Middle East it's an honor and shame culture. So here's the thing. You're, even today, I mean, this is almost every day, and I hate this every time. Every day, almost every day, uh, probably too much, once a week at least, there's a news feed about an honor killing in the Middle Eastern tribal like, you know, Islamic world, usually, right? Yeah, exactly, because you've shamed the family, and so we kill you, right? This even happens with women who are raped. 
somehow it's your fault, and so we kill you to restore the honor of the family. Right? That's how powerful it is. So he, his reading would be, in an honor and shame culture, Jesus is challenging their honor. So they've come to him to shame him, and he cleverly turns it back by, by, by writing in the, I mean, this is his reading of the text, by writing in the dust, killer. He's, he's actually put it back on them. He's actually turned the question around back on them. It's a very clever reading of the story. You know? Yes, please. Actually, I've been surprised to discover how much Wheaton color, co- culture is shame-based, to be honest with you. Because here's the thing. If my six-year-old is a better soccer player than your six-year-old, you have to go home and shame. Sorry. Yeah. And, and once you shame somebody, there's no going back. Exactly. It's do. very difficult to undo shame, mm-hmm. right? It's like, yeah, shame is just a very – and it's why it's so, so, it's why it's so powerful, right? Mm-hmm. It's so powerful. Um, Kelly, you were going to say – Go ahead, Donna. Right? Yes, right. That's right. And he invites, more than that, he does, it's not theoretical. He basically says, now we'll go with you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Like, I'm in. Well, let's go. And then, of course, he, he and he, the ultimate, so Middle Eastern culture, who, who is the most respected in Middle Eastern culture? It's the oldest. So he follows this, he pushes the shame and honor culture thing all the way out, and he says, in fact, you know, what do you do in a pinch? Especially in, not, not, in, not in your internet society, but in that society, who do they look to? They don't look to Zuckerberg, they look to the oldest person. The oldest person, right? And so Jesus, like, he just, he just raises the ante. Go ahead and kill her, and... Whosoever doesn't have any sin, cast the first stone. That throws everybody into a tizzy because they know in the Old Testament that all of us have sinned. That's in the Old Testament. And so people then are like, eh, what do we do? What, when you have a what do we do moment, you look to your parents, you look to your grandparents, you look to your rabbi, you look to your leader, and now he's completely reversed the situation. And the shame, honor possibility doesn't lie with him but with his accusers. Does that make sense? It's a very clever reading. Go ahead. Yes. Now, I, I'm just going to confess to you. I've always read that as the light bulb going on for the oldest person. Bailey reads it completely the opposite. He says the oldest person is so shamed, he leaves in th- just this bitter anger. I'll get him the next time. And everybody else follows. So I, that's a very harsh reading of the text. That I'd never read. So this is kind of the reason. This is a very harsh reading of the text that I'd never kind of considered before. Um, you know, maybe it's true. I've always, I've always had a more generous reading of that. That kind of Jesus got through to them, and that the eldest person kind of had this aha experience, and that's why they all left. They all left to give space to this woman. He reads it exactly the opposite. Yeah, it, and it may be true. But even, even in that culture, I mean, there are people who do who do break out of that culture, right? But, geez, it's a very different reading. Go ahead. Why would he write it rather than just say it? Bailey says that it's a clever way to show that he's up on rabbinic law. Because he can, writing in the dust is like the Sabbath day thing to do, right? 
So by doing that, it's kind of like when you drop a name or you, on your Facebook page, I know you're on with some very famous people. I mean, you don't always put their names, but we recognize them. You know, we saw you standing next to the president. We know, I mean, that was just like, you're a big contributor. We, you know, we, it's like that, right? So you just sort of, it was just kind of an intellectual touche. Because they'd always made fun of him as being a guy from nowhere who doesn't know anything. Is it also because you had mentioned, too, about the blowing, once the wind blows the skirt, it's like gone away. So is it kind of like a way they could walk away without actually... See, you're, you're such a Christian. You want to you <laughs> give them a way out. I'm going to say, if you have a kid, go get your kid. We're just going to go for a couple more minutes because we're still just... If you have your kid, go get them and bring them back. Just come back, okay? Because we, we need to let those girls go because they have... 10.30 classes. Yes, I have a question. Yeah, go. If he wrote in the, in the sand, how educated were these Pharisees and these other people? That group would have been very educated. Yeah. When it says scribes yeah. and Pharisees, scribes are the guy who copied the, right? They're the guys who, they're, Pharisees are businessmen, extraordinarily successful, very rich, and very letter of the law. Oh, yeah, sure, small businessmen, big businessmen. Yeah, but even higher level than money changers, like like CEOs, CEO types. That's who the Pharisees were. Uh, last thing, and it's this, it's number seventeen. Um, this is the final generous reading of Bailey's thing, where he says, "In doing this to them, here's the gospel part. He shifts the anger from the woman to himself. Isn't that interesting?" That Jesus shifts the anger. So everybody comes angry at this woman because you have to be angry at this woman, right? Because that's what a mob does and that's, she's the one who broke the law. So, but Jesus, Jesus shifts the anger off the woman onto himself. That's a really genius reading of the text, I would think. I think. I think it's a very clever, clever idea. That in Jesus, part of, and, and that is a, see, that goes with atonement. That's what happens in an atonement, that Jesus stands in your place. So in a way, he pushes her out of the way, and he takes the brunt of all the bad stuff that's going to come. Yes? I think that's genius. Yeah, I think that's a great reading of the text. Yeah, he disperses the darkness or disperses the evil, right? Which also means she doesn't have to do anything yet at that point, right? She's just standing there. Like, it's not like she has to make up for anything or do anything. There's nothing. I mean, there's nothing she can do, right? She's dead, right? And he makes her alive, but as a gift, there's nothing else that happens. It's a, I, that's very clever. For you who left, I just, I just, I'll just tell you the, the one salient point, and then we'll kind of go. And if you want to chat, or we can. But the salient point comes at 17, where Jesus, they were angry at the woman, and now they're angry at Jesus. And that's its own kind of atonement. He steps into her place, and the anger is redirected at him. And then Penny said very cleverly, it not only redirects at him, but it kind of disperses the crowd. So this woman, I'm just going to paraphrase if I can, she's kind of left there to just absorb the gifts. Is that fair? She's just left. She doesn't really have to do anything. She couldn't do anything. So part, Jesus does two things. One is he absorbs the anger himself, and then he pushes the darkness back, and then you have this great moment between the woman and Jesus. We'll just kind of finish up with this. This is not Bailey. This is me. But I think what you need to see in there is that he totally reconciles her. When he says to her, you know, where are those that condemn you? They're nowhere. So who are the possibilities that would condemn her? Her family. Good. And? 
So her family slash community, other people, God, Jesus himself. So God, your community, and then who else? Yourself. So he says to her, is there anybody around who condemns you? So now think how clever this is. So God says to you, does anybody condemn you? So God's clean. You're clean with, the, with God. Jesus says you're clean. Does anybody condemn you? No. So he doesn't, so God doesn't condemn you. The community's been dispersed. So the community's not there to condemn anymore. And then she's, he says to her, she says, no one, Lord, which means in the most generous reading, she doesn't even condemn herself anymore. So God doesn't condemn her, the community doesn't condemn her, and she doesn't condemn herself, which is basically the three things you go through whenever you sin and get forgiven, right? You've got to square up with God, square up with the community, and hardest often is to square up with yourself, right? And then he says, I don't condemn you either, go and sin no more, which is go and have a happy life. So he doesn't condone it, but he also doesn't condemn her. He recognizes the sin, but this is the full stretch of forgiveness. He recognizes the sin... But he takes the punishment, the anger, and she's able to go free and have her life back. Isn't that cool? Yes, go. Yes, but good. But, but oh, good. Exactly. He does put it back on her, but in this really cool sense. And now we've got to think, if I say to you, Pat, don't go out and crash your car, don't get drunk before noon, um, don't yell at Cliff, and... Um, don't watch Netflix if it's not in your name. Am I saying to you, um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? So you're making it my choice. Yes, but I'm also, it's a little like George Sengstack just went to the Grand Canyon. He was saying, he, you know, there was somebody, you know, they don't have, ra- they have signs up, but they don't have railings. And he said while he was there, you know, there were a couple of people who fell over the edge. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I, and this is the one I always use. There was one person who was going, it was, he said it was like the Three Stooges. It's like, stay there, stay there, stay there. And you're like, I know. I, so, so the thing is, is, and this is always my question for you, when there's a sign that says, don't go past the sign, and it's always people who go past the sign. It's always people who say, don't go past the sign, and then they go past the sign. And then they wonder where So when you go past, is the sign law or gospel? It's the greatest bit of gospel. It's like, don't go past the sign. Anybody who goes past the sign is dead. Please don't go past the sign. When you say to your kids, you're like, don't drink and drive. Don't stick a needle into yourself. Don't go that, that, that. When you're, say, you're saying to people, I mean, it's the most kindest thing you can do. So I would read that as, her, as him saying to her, wow, you tried that, you touched that, that really didn't go so well. Look, you get a do-over now. So don't touch that anymore. Touch all this other really good stuff. I think it's a glorious kindness, is it not? Right? And the Ten Commandments the same way. You've got to think about last thing. You've got to think about the Ten Commandments this way. When he says... Love me, come to church, I'll hear your prayers, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, be faithful to your spouse, and be happy with what you've got. Is that the law or the gospel? That is the gospel. He's telling you, live in the promised land, it's going to be great. Right? Go ahead. Yes. Yes. Absolutely right. Yeah. The thing is, though, part of it, part of my reading with that is, that's a very good, like, literary reading of the text. Now just surround it with a mob. Because the mob makes everything chaotic and screwed up, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I could gather you a mob of people like that in about 10 minutes. It's like 38 days to the election and just... 
It, it is not. Yeah, I mean, it's e- getting them. I'm surprised how easy it is to get a mob, to be honest with you. All right, here you go. Let's. Uh, so anyway, I mean, now do you get sort of what we're doing? This is just for fun. I mean, this is just reading the text in a way you didn't read it before. I'll come right. Go ahead, Donna. Right. Once you've done, you know what's what's really fun. You know who fun people are. Fun people who've done a really horrible thing and then come into the church. You know why that's fun? Because. All the rest of you, like good-hearted, well-scrubbed Wheaton people who've never really done anything very bad in your lives, I mean, you actually kind of don't know what that's like, and you're always kind of thinking as you fall asleep at night, I really should give that a try. <laughs> However, people who have done horrible, horrible, horrible things and then get forgiven, they don't have any interest in going back and giving that a try. They, they know... They, yeah, they do. They, they know what it's like, and they, yeah, there's a way. They just, they're the people who can say, hey, really don't, you know, I just, ooh, you shouldn't, you know. They're like AA sponsors, you know. It's that kind of people. Mm-hmm. People who are AA sponsors have a particular kind of, I've been there, and I, that just, just don't do that because that's not going to go well for you. So I think you're, you're right. Hey, next week, um, you want to just do 18, Woman in the House of Simon the Pharisee? It's kind of a longer one. Maybe I'll give that to Pastor Nelson. No, I'll, I'll do it. It's, uh, I started reading that one last night, too. So it's 20 pages. But you know what? Read what you can. Have some fun with it. Um, throw 17 bucks in a pile someday. And if you can't spend 17 bucks, then don't throw it in. Just take it for free. What? Yes, please. How do you know that? <laughs> well, you and I are going to be reading... No, I'll have uh, Pastor Nelson will do that with you, chapter 18. <laughs> Whatever, man. I'm just trying to get through. I'm just trying to get the, I'm trying to get to 5 o'clock right now, okay? Uh, well, so much for the um, quarter after plan, although when the children are this good, it really doesn't, when you have perfect, you know, they're like the Holy Family sitting there. It doesn't really make any difference, does it? So, hey, Nora, my friend Nora. Nora. Hey. Hey, you're walking. Yeah, the girl. All right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, um, tell your friends, you know, there's a few familiar faces who aren't here. You know, bring your friends back. Everybody's got to get back in the groove, but give your friends a call. Bring them back. Tell them to come have coffee with you and have some fun. Thanks.